In my last sermon, which was entitled, From the Lord God to God, we focused our attention completely on our enemy Satan. And we began by looking at the origin of Satan. Where did he come from? Why does he want to destroy everything? And we focused the majority of our time on how Satan approaches Eve in the garden. And I gave you eight tactics for how Satan attacks people. And so I'm not going to go through them again today, but if you haven't heard that, go and listen to it. It's on our YouTube channel. It's on our our, uh, our uh, website. That's what they're called, websites. Uh, And so you can go and listen to that and get caught up. But I gave you a growth step three weeks ago. And I wanted each one of you to go away and consider the eight tactics that we covered and determine what are the ones that I am most susceptible to. And I said it would be a great idea if you're married to ask your spouse. If you have a best friend, ask your best friend. They're going to know what you are susceptible to. And I said let's go away and let's consider what lies about God's character am I most easily persuaded by. Because at the core of Satan's attacks, anytime he comes at someone, His attempt is to get you to believe something false about God's character so that you will doubt him. So I said, go away, do that. Ask God to protect your heart and your mind. And then I gave you another assignment. Anybody remember what the other assignment was? You didn't do it, did you? Susan? Romans 12, 2. Who's brave enough? You brave enough? No? Okay, that's all right. I said go and memorize Romans 12 too, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now i got to cheat. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is right, what is perfect, right? And so I said memorize that. It's important to understand this. We need to have our minds renewed by the Word of God so we can test and know what is good so we know when our enemy is coming against us. And so now that we have looked at our enemy... Our focus over the next few weeks is going to be on ourselves, or more specifically on Adam and Eve as representations of us so that we can know ourselves. Because the reality is that we have a formidable adversary. But what he does is he persuades and he tempts and he influences. He cannot make us sin. Ultimately, the decision to give in to temptation, the decision to give in to sin is our own, and we will bear the responsibility for our sins before God. We will stand before Him and give an account, and I'm telling you, we can't pass the blame on Satan when we're standing before God. When you read the story in Genesis, it didn't work then for Adam and Eve, and it's not going to work for us when we are standing before God. Christ. And so we really need to understand ourselves. We need to understand our weaknesses. We need to understand our tendencies and how sin has corrupted us in order to help prepare us for the battle that we are in. And we can learn a lot from looking at what happened in the garden. And so this morning, we are going to focus on what was happening in Eve's heart that led to rebellion against God and against His commands and what led to the fall. Uh, Because whatever was happening in Eve's heart is going to be similar to what can happen in ours. And then over the next three weeks, we're going to look at what happened in the fall, uh, shame, uh, blame, shame, hiding, fear, all those great things that are in the world that weren't in the world before the fall. And then two weeks from now, we're going to look specifically at man's fall. What are the things that men now have to deal with, have to push back against in ourselves because of the fall? And then, ladies, it'll be your turn after that. What are the things that women specifically have to deal with and push back against because of the fall? And so, 
it, I believe this is going to be challenging for us over the next several weeks, but it's important to examine ourselves that we may have hearts to, to just deal with these things that are going on inside of us. And so may we have hearts to hear it, may we have hearts to receive it and respond to it as is necessary in each of our lives. And so I want to pray to that end right now. And so, Father, thank you so much for each person here, each heart that's here. Father, I know that every single person that's here this morning is important to you. You love them, and I thank you for them. And Father, I pray your blessing over them. And Father, I pray that as we preach, as I preach this message, that it would be your words, Father, that we would hear from you, and that your spirit would speak to hearts and lives this morning, and that you would change circumstances, that you would change hearts. And Father, I pray that through the power of your spirit, you would make us more like Jesus. It's in his mighty name that I pray. Amen. Well, Nick read for us Genesis 3, verse 1 to 6, and our focus is going to be primarily on verses 5 and 6 this morning because uh, those two verses especially give us clues to Eve's heart and her response to Satan's tactics and attacks against her. And I'm not going to leave it a mystery for you this morning as to what's happening in her heart. I'm going to tell you right off the start so that we can examine it in the text together. And for those of you who are really observant... Uh, you already know what I'm going to say. Eve was tripped up by doubt and desire. It was an open book test. Yeah, it was an open book test for you. Doubt and desire. Both of these led to the fall. And we're going to look at how. Because when we sin, doubt and desire are firing off inside of us as well. With Eve... Satan was able to move her from a place of trust to a place of doubting God's character. And once he had her doubting, he elevated, or maybe more precisely, highlighted and exploited a desire that was within her, that in her doubt about God's character had space to grow, and it ultimately led to sin. And the same thing happens in us. What I want you to take away from this morning, if nothing else, is that when doubt in God's character takes hold, what is left is to be ruled by our own desires. Now that may seem like a big jump, but it's not a big jump. When we doubt God's character, when that takes hold of a person, that person will eventually succumb to being ruled by their own desires rather than the commands of God. And you can just look at our world today and you can see it on a grand scale. If followed to its end point and not remedied, what does doubt lead to? Well, doubt leads to unbelief. Right? You can only doubt the character of God for so long before you will either come to hate Him, you will hate His church, and you will alienate yourself from Christ, or you will deny entirely that there is a God, and that is where our society is at now. And what is left to live for if you are no longer living for God? It is whatever is most felt within yourself, your wants. Your desires become the ultimate thing, the ultimate pursuit of your life. And so Satan starts Eve down a slippery slope to sin by first getting her to doubt God's character. As we looked at last time, he starts this tactic in verse 1. And he starts it by exaggerating the restrictions that God had placed on Adam and Eve. 
So that instead of focusing on the abundance of what was given to them, Eve was now focusing on the restriction that God had placed upon them. In verse 1, Satan comes to her and he says, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Suddenly, God is presented to Eve as restrictive. It's completely false, but that's how he's presenting God to Eve. God is abundant. He is generous. But Satan attempts to get Eve's eyes off of that abundance, off of that generosity, and focused on the restriction of God's command not to eat the one tree in the midst of the garden by exaggerating it to say, well, did he really say any tree? And it's an effective tactic. And you can see how effective it is in Eve's response. While she rebuts what he says, we see this little indication that her heart was already unsure of God's character. Because she presents God as having placed more restriction on them than what he actually had. We see it in verse 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, no, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the middle of the garden, or in the garden, okay, so that's right. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. That's right too. And then she adds, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Neither shall you touch it. Went beyond God's command. And so suddenly now Eve is painting God as more restrictive than he actually is. And it was likely unintentional. But she's misrepresenting God, which reflects that there's something happening in her heart. Because Jesus tells us, the words that we say come from within. They come from the heart. And in her response, she unwittingly is opening the door to Satan to exploit her further. The exaggeration of the restrictiveness of God is an effective tactic. And it is an effective tactic on Eve. And it is an effective tactic on humanity in general. It keeps a lot of people from coming to faith, and it keeps a lot of people from growing in faith. And so if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, or you are a young follower of Jesus, or maybe you're a follower of Jesus that's just kind of stuck in the muck and the mire right now, don't fall for the lie that to follow Jesus will make your life boring, will make your life restrictive, because God will take all the fun out of it. Like, that's a lie from Satan who hates you and wants to see you destroyed. But this is a sentiment that is common in our world. Right? People think that Christianity is all about rules. You can't do this. You can't do that. Thou, thou shalt not do that. Thou shalt not do this. When in fact, the truth of Christianity is what Jesus says in John 10.10. 10. The thief, Satan, comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Right? The abundant life, the full life that we are all looking for. Let's be honest, we're all looking for abundant life. We're all looking for full life. That life that people are chasing after is found in Jesus Christ, not in the things that God has taken away or told you, no, no, don't do it. Abundant life is not found in there. Just ask yourself, 
How do things work out for you when you follow the ways of the world and do the things that God has commanded you not to do? How does that go for you? Is that ever life-giving? Or when you do that, does it leave you more broken? Does it leave you more hurt? Does it leave you more in debt, more in pain, more in sorrow? Just examine your life and you will find the latter to be true. And so what happens is, when you doubt in God's character, you see a command like, do not eat of the tree, Eve. Or sex is for man and woman in a lifelong covenant. Or don't be filled with wine or strong drink. Or any number of commands you want to pick. And doubt in God's character will make you think, well, God's restrictive. But He's not. And if you come to know God's character that He is holy and He is righteous and He is good and He is a loving Father who cares for you as a child, then you will realize He's protecting you. It's not about keeping you from anything good. He's giving you all good things. James says, all good things come down from the Father of lights. He's commanding you to stay away from the bad things. He's like a parent commanding their child, don't run into the fire. I know it looks cool, but you're going to get burned. God's commands are Him saying to you, don't run into that fire. You are going to get burned. It's going to hurt you. And when people understand the gospel, they can see that. They can see that God's character is good, that He wants the best for them. He sent His one and only Son. He's not holding anything back, including His one and only Son, to come and die on a cross for you so that you could have life and have it abundantly because you couldn't save yourself because you were stuck in your sin. He's not going to hold anything good back from you. Look what He did for you. Don't believe the lie that God is restrictive. So after Satan detects an opening, a hint of a doubt in Eve's response, he swings the door wide open for doubt. Verse three and, or 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know what Satan just did there? He exploited the little piece of doubt and he fanned it into flame with a direct accusation against God. You know what he said to her? There's two accusations, really, but he said, God's a liar and he's jealous. He's lying to you, he doesn't care about you, he's looking out for himself. He accuses God of being a liar. You will not surely die. No, God said, you will surely die. And he accuses God of being jealous. God knows, he's keeping it from you because he knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's bringing doubt to Eve about God's character. And in doing so, Eve's eyes begin to lower 
And I'm telling you, when your eyes begin to lower, and you begin to doubt God, from there, Satan can direct Eve, and he can direct you wherever he wants to. It's like a horrible choose-your-own-adventure book. Once your eyes start to lower, oh, God's out for himself, not for you. He does not have your best interests at heart. That thing you desire, it's good. Go get it. Don't worry about the consequences. Come on. God's not going to judge you. Ultimately, what Satan is growing in Eve's heart is a redirection of her desire away from God and toward herself, where self becomes the end goal. When doubt in God's character takes hold of a person, what is left is to be ruled by, instead of commands, your own desires. God's command loses sway over Eve's desire because of her doubt. And as I was preparing for this this week, I, I really felt the Lord impress upon me as I, was, as I was preparing that there's some of you in here, some of you who are followers of Jesus, who are doubting God's character. Not, not entirely. There's aspects of God's character that you are completely doubting. You've surrendered many things to him, but there's an aspect of his character that you're questioning, that you're doubting, and it is leading you to sin in a specific area because you're not trusting him. The doorway to sin is doubt. And as doubt grew, desire began to rule Eve. And that's what we're going to look at next. Doubt made space for Eve to be ruled by desire. And doubt makes space for you and I to be ruled by desire. Now, desire is not a bad thing. I want to be clear. Desire is not a bad thing. God knitted us together with desires. His Word and Jesus' teaching specifically uses the language of desire in a very positive way. Jesus, when He teaches, He uses words like urging, hungering, thirsting, longing, eagerness, right? These are all words to describe desire, and they're used in reference to our relationship with Jesus, as well as our desire to do good things. And so, desire is good. But like all things, our desires have been tainted by sin, and they need to be redeemed by Jesus. And desire becomes dangerous and potentially sinful when we allow our desires to be fixated on the wrong thing or motivated by the wrong reasons. So I want to tease that out a little bit. In his letter of or sorry, in the letter that he wrote to believing Jews that had been dispersed out of the land of Israel, um, James warns uh, about the danger of desire in James 1, 14 to 16. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, is, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now, what is interesting in James' explanation here is that desire begins innocently. 
Because desire is good. It's from God, right? But at some point, it can turn from being a good desire to being an evil desire, and it becomes temptation and potentially sinful. And if we follow the progression James presents in these verses, desire begins innocent. It could be hunger. It could be the desire for sexual fulfillment, a a want for acceptance. These things are innocent. It's not sinful to want food. It's not sinful to want to be uh, sexually fulfilled. It's not sinful to want to be loved and accepted. But hunger can become gluttony. And sexual desire can become lust and immorality. And the want for acceptance can lead to compromise of morals, depending on who you're wanting to be accepted by. And so James says at some point there is a luring and an enticement that happens to desire within us, which can cause those desires to cross a line from good to evil. And James calls this conception. When desire crosses that line, and then it gives birth to sin, which means it's acted upon in a sinful manner. And when desire has conceived evil and and given birth to sin, if it's allowed to continue to grow and grow and grow, what does it lead to, James says? Death. What does James mean by that? I think there's a couple of things. First, I think it has to do with duration. If sin remains unchecked in our lives, if it's allowed to continue, it will multiply. And our appetite for it grows. And it becomes a cancer that spreads throughout our body and kills us. Because it leads to what Paul describes in 1 Timothy as a seared conscience. Continued sin sears your conscience. Someone with a seared conscience is a person that has sinned for so long that their moral compass is completely destroyed. Like there's no longer guilt. There's no longer any sense of shame. They've they've essentially burned up their conscience completely. And this can happen partially to an individual, or it can happen entirely. I want to give you an example. Uh, There is an old theologian, he's dead, named Karl Barth. Some of you may have heard of him. Some of you may really dislike him. (laughs) He was an excellent theological teacher, followed Jesus, far we know loved Jesus. But his whole life... He had a mistress. He was married, and he had a mistress on the side. And he never thought that was wrong. Like, that's a seared conscience. Not entirely. His whole life wasn't that. But that one section, his conscience was completely seared. He couldn't even see that that was sinful. So our consciences can be partially seared in an area where we just are so blind to our sin. 
or it can be completely corrupted. And when that happens, it usually means walking away from any semblance of Christ-like life. The second aspect of sin growing to death is a lack of repentance. When there's no turning from, when there's no turning back to God, when there's no repentance at all in your heart, sin will lead to death. So with this explanation of the progression of sin in mind, let's look at Genesis 3.6. Eve's response, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve's desire would have started innocently. In reading verse 6, we can deduce what her desire was. She was likely hungry, and she desired wisdom. Those are not sinful desires. But as her doubt in the character of God grew, due to the seed that was planted in her heart by Satan... She was lured and enticed by her desire for food and wisdom, and they became temptations as she desired to source them from where God commanded her not to. You can imagine the internal dialogue that Eve was having in her mind. The fruit of the tree that God said not to eat of, that looks really good. I'm hungry. He said not to, but it looks good. I've tasted all the other trees. not tasted that one before. And it's good for making me wise. I want to have knowledge. And I don't know if I can trust God to give it to me if he's jealous. He's holding back from me. When you fall into sin, you have a similar battle of the mind going on. Similar justifications. And so her desire became temptation and it gave birth to sin. So she ate the fruit. So that's the progression of sin. But I want to look at this from one other angle before we end. Because the temptation of Eve and the subsequent fall not only show the progression of sin, but it displays the shift of affection from God to the world that happens in every heart that doubts and forsakes the Lord. When doubt in God's character leads us to be ruled by our own desires, we will stumble in one or all of three areas which the Bible refers to as loving the world. The reality is we will either love God and look to Him for the fulfillment of our desires, or we will love the world in seeking the fulfillment of our desires, though we will never be fulfilled. And in Genesis 3, 6, we can see as Eve's eyes lower from God to herself, she stumbles in all three areas that the Bible calls loving the world. The Apostle John describes them for us in his letter, 1 John 2, 16. He says, For all that is in the world, 
the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Well, what happened to Eve in the garden? Desires of the flesh. Eve saw the tree was good for food. Desires of the eyes. Eve saw that it was a delight to the eyes. And pride of life. The tree was desired to make one wise. These are the temptations of the world that Eve gave into and that you and I will give into apart from the power of Christ in us. If you are a follower of Christ, at one point you were ruled by the passion of pleasure, whether it be of the flesh or of the eyes, physical or aesthetic pleasure, and the pride of possessions, the pride of life, what you have, what you've obtained, the position you hold. You were held by one or all of those things. And Eve was lured and enticed by all of it in the garden, and humanity has been the same ever since. In Christ, there's victory. There is victory over sin. We have victory over being ruled by our flesh. We have victory over being ruled by our passions. We have victory over being ruled by our pride because such things were nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 1 Peter 1.14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. They are not your passions anymore. The question is, how do you do that? How does that happen? Well, the Spirit does that in us as we seek the things that are above through God's Word, through prayer, through brothers and sisters in faith, encouraging and exhorting one another in righteousness so that we are prepared when temptation does come so that we are not lured and we are not enticed by our desires to sin. But what do we do in the moment when temptation does come? Because it will come. And so what do we do in that moment? moment. And thankfully, we have a Lord and Savior who has been tempted in every way as we have been, yet He did not sin. And so we can look to Him. And I don't mean symbolically, like yes, we look to Jesus symbolically, but I mean quite literally, we can look to Jesus. Because in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was tempted with the same three things that Eve was tempted with, and you and I are tempted with in the world. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. But unlike the situation in the garden, Jesus defeated the temptations of Satan. Matthew 4. Verse 1 to 11, let's look at it. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, desires of the flesh. I'm hungry, need food. But he answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Pride of life. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Desire the eyes. Look at all this. All this can be yours. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. It's, a, it's an incredible thing when you read it. And you know what? It's so informative for followers of Jesus, and we just, so many completely miss what is going on here. Jesus defeats Satan with the Word of God. Like, we say it, but do you get it? Like, do you get that you have the Word of God, you have the Spirit of God in you, and that is how you defeat Satan? When he comes at you with lies, you come right back at him with the Word of God. Because that is a sword that is sharper than any double-edged sword, and you will defeat him. And some of us are, 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 are too nervous to do it. You think it's crazy. Like you're at home and you're feeling temptation come against you, and you're like, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything out loud. No, you say something out loud. You can't see what's going on around you, but there's a battle going on. There's powers and principalities in this dark place, right? They are coming against us, and you speak against them in the name of Jesus with the Word of God. And some of you need to know that. When you're tempted, okay, when you're tempted, yes, pray, Lord, help me. But in that moment of temptation, you take out that sword, and you go to battle. And you say, no, I'm not going to be tempted by that because Jesus, God's Word says this, and Satan will flee from you. And I'm telling you, if you do it, it's effective. So to that end, I want to give you a growth step this week. I want you to consider the desires that are within you that most easily lure and entice you to temptation and sin. And I'm asking you, take it seriously. You are in a battle. You need to know what your weaknesses are. Where will you fall? Where will you sin? Where are you easily lured and tempted and enticed? And then share them with someone else. If you're married, your wife should know this already. If you're married, your husband should know this already. If they don't, there's a problem. Because they're the best person that you have to go to battle with you. If you're not married, a best friend, someone that you trust should know it already. Because there's, sometimes there's weakness in a moment where it's like, I can't even speak the Word of God, but I've got a friend who can do it for me. You need someone to know it. And then pray together for protection. And search God's Word for an arsenal of scriptures to combat the enemy. Have them in your back pocket ready to go, right? So if you're a man who struggles with lust, get a list of scriptures that fight against lust and have them ready to go. 
If you're a man or a woman who fight or struggles with anger, list the scriptures ready to go. Whatever it might be, know what your weakness is. Have God's word ready to go to battle for you. Use it. It's there for you. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would remind us, um, Lord, you would remind us that we're in a battle. Some of us are asleep. Some of us are just kind of wading through life, doing Christianity. No, Lord, we're in a battle, and we need to be awakened to that reality. Lord, we need to be awakened to the reality of sin, that it leads to death, that it's not a minor thing, that it's not something to be messed around with, it's something to be fleed from, it's something to be fought against. God, we need a renewed vision of your holiness. We need to know that we serve a holy God and we are called to be holy. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us that vision. Give us that vision that you've been showing me all week of you in the temple with the elders bowed down before you and worshiping you day and night because you are worthy. Father, may we know your character. May we know your holiness. Father, may our, our lives greatest desire be to please you because we can trust you that you are good, that you are not restrictive, that you are abundant, you are merciful, that you are generous, and you give us all good things, and you protect us from bad things. And Father, we know that we have an enemy who's going to come against us. We know that we have an enemy who wants to rob, kill, steal, and destroy, and we will not have that happen in the name of Jesus. Because he is victorious. We are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And we have the same spirit that raised him from the dead inside of us. We have power in the name of Jesus. And Father, I pray that each person here would understand the power that is available to them through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God. That when they are tempted, they can speak truth and the enemy will flee. God, may we not be bashful. May we be bold to speak the word of God. You need bold people, God, who are going to go to battle for you in this day and age, in this darkness. May we be upright in heart. May we be upright in mind so that we may be the light in this world that we need to be. Have your way in our hearts, Lord, we pray. Convict us of sin. Renew us for the glory of your name, God. For the good of this world that needs you. We can't serve others if we're bound up in sin, God. Free us in Jesus' name. Thank you for your love and your mercy over each one here. We praise you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.